This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Erin Wathen discusses her new book, Resist and Persist, Faith and the Fight for Equality. Then PW editorial director Jim Milliot introduces some fast-growing independent publishers. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by NPD BookScan. We've got a new number one on the hardcover fiction list that's I've Got My Eyes on You by Mary Higgins Clark. Uh, we've got a review of this, and we say it's a disappointing suspense mm. novel that uh, falls far short of Clark's best. It's uh, about a young woman who finds the body of her 18-year-old sister at the bottom of their parents' swimming pool and uh, there's a a wound on her head it's clear she was killed but by whom and uh, Clark really just doesn't manage to do very much with that premise but it's still at number one uh, sold almost 15,000 copies in hardcover according to NPD Bookscan Mm. Um, so uh, Mary Higgins Clark is a long time popular best-selling author no surprise that that hit the top of the list and number nine, Cave of Bones by Anne Hillerman. This is a Leaphorn Chi and Manuelito novel. And uh, we say it's a meandering mystery set in New Mexico. Uh, it's the fourth one featuring this particular crowd of investigators. And uh, in this case, a Navajo police officer uh, is investigating a missing camper from a program for troubled teens. Mm. Uh, We say that diffuse plotting makes this a weak series entry, though Hillerman's use of the harsh but beautiful landscape and details of Navajo life is as strong as ever. Uh, just below that, at uh, number 10, The Female Persuasion by Meg Wolitzer. We give this a starred review. This is that it's an ambitious and satisfying novel that charts a Massachusetts girl's coming of age and asks pressing questions about what it means to be an empowered modern woman. And as in her previous novels, Wolitzer writes with an easy engrossing style, and she has a real eye for detail. So we said this is insightful and resonant. And just below that, at number 11, Varina by Charles Fraser. And uh, we say that uh, mm. Verena Howell Davis, who is the wife and widow of Confederate President Jefferson Davis, is an inspired choice as heroine for Fraser's riveting fourth novel, uh, which is about being on the wrong side of history and the consequences of that. Uh, we say that uh, Verena's emotional reserve and stoic narration keep her from being a, f- a fully vibrant character, but this is still a sharp, evocative novel. And uh, finally, just down at number 15, wanted to note Greeks Bearing Gifts by Philip Kerr, uh, the 13th Bernie Gunther novel uh, set in 1957. We say that it's twisty uh, and it finds the former Berlin cop employed as a lowly mortuary assistant in Munich. And the good news for series fans is that an even better career may lie ahead for Bernie as a spy. And that's, uh, that's how they wrap up this particular title. And that's pretty much what we've got uh, for the highlights on the hardcover fiction list. All right. We've got at number two in nonfiction, uh, our highest debut, The Rational Bible by Dennis Prager. And this is basically a close reading of uh, Exodus. At number three, we have Factfulness, 10 Reasons We're Wrong About the World and Why Things Are Better Than You Think by Hans Rosling, with, co-written with, um, assuming his daughters, Anna Rosling and Ola Rosling. Hans died, I believe, you know more than I. Yeah, in 2017, ago. I was a big fan of his work. Yeah. And uh, it's wonderful to see that uh, there's, a, there's a last book coming coming out with his name on it. Yeah, exactly. And uh, one thing, just a factfulness, the stress-reducing habit of only caring opinions for which you have strong supporting facts. Uh, so anyway, it looks it looks really good, and it's obviously selling well at number three. And he, he became a sort of global phenomenon after he did an incredible TED Talk that demonstrated um, his software for 
correlating facts from all over the world and observing trends mm. rather than uh, relying on outdated stereotypes and notions of right. what might be happening uh, outside or even inside your backyard. So uh, it's it's really yeah, it's great to see this coming out and and uh, and bolstering that once again the importance of really having data and looking at the right. data. Yep. To, yeah. To exactly. Back up what you believe. You're right. We were talking about this before. Uh, so I look forward to seeing the TED talk. And perhaps even reading the book. So uh, <laughs> at number eight, Make Trouble, Standing Up, Speaking Out, and Finding the Courage to Lead, My Life Story by uh, uh, Cecil Richards with Lauren Peterson. Uh, Richards, is, she's the uh, activist who here maps a road to success from un- union organizer to her tenure as president of Planned Parenthood. And she recalls the experience that shaped her career. We say that this book serves as a call to action for women who are mobilizing to make a difference in government and health care policies. Then after that, we have Unified How Our Unlikely Friendship Gives Us Hope for a Divided Country by Tim Scott, who's an African-American U.S. senator, and Trey Gowdy, uh, who's a white U.S. congressman. And here they just refuse to let racial lines divide them. So this is, uh, this is, I think, very much in the conversation, especially with politics at number 11. And number 13, we have Strength and Stillness, The Power of Transcendental Meditation, by Bob Roth. Uh, this came out in February, uh, was on the bestseller list then. We discussed it then, back on. So um, people uh, dipping into meditation, transcendental meditation. And um, I think that's what we got on the nonfiction list. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Aaron Wathen tells us why Jesus was a feminist. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Apricot Irving. I'm the author of The Gospel of Trees, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Erin Wathen on the line. Her new book is Resist and Persist, Faith in the Fight for Equality. Hello, Erin. So glad you could join us. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on. So in your book, you talk about the many ways patriarchal Christianity affects women's lives. Give us an introduction. Tell us about this. Well, I tell you, this is something I've always known is a big part of our daily lives and culture. But I think digging into this for the book, I became even more aware of just how pervasive uh, patriarchal Christianity is in other elements of public life. Uh, And a lot of it has to do with churches that are still holding out on allowing women to preach and serve in major major leadership roles. And obviously, this is a worldview that doesn't fly in the corporate world or in a a lot of other places where women have have earned full equality or at least the uh, legal entitlement to full equality, even if it's not uh, always practiced as such. But For some reason, uh, it's still pretty widely accepted that churches can get away with uh, subverting and and silencing women in these ways. And so I just I kind of explored a little bit of of where that comes from, first of all, because the the Christian practice and narrative was never meant to be so uh, entirely male centered um, and, and focused on the masculine voice. And so I looked at how, um, you know, how we got from there to here and then also at some of the the wider cultural expressions of how that understanding of the faith affects women's lives now in, in everyday kinds of ways. So tell us a little bit about what you mean by patriarchal Christianity. Are all branches, are all parts of Christianity patriarchal? Um and then tell us a little bit how perhaps they differ within the various uh, Christian churches. Okay, yeah, that's a great question because, of course, there are so many expressions of Christianity, especially here in America. Uh, I find it fascinating that we can have so many different philosophies and worldviews that are all all wrapped up claiming the same faith. Uh, you know, I write for the the Pathios interfaith network online and they have a channel for every different faith uh, you know but there's one channel for buddhists and one channel for muslims and uh, maybe a couple of channels for judaism but then you go into christianity and there's about five different uh brands if you will and and that doesn't even begin to touch uh, how many different 
denominations and expressions of Christianity that there are uh, in reality in our day-to-day lives. So uh, to answer your question about if all Christianity is patriarchal, uh, I, I would say the short answer to that is yes, because all of Christianity as we know it has been influenced by certain interpretations of the Bible that that portray God as primarily male and father figure uh, that have emphasized in different ways throughout different parts of history uh, the the silencing of women and the very specific roles that women are and aren't allowed to fill uh, and that that's just part of our history by and large now that said I think certain denominations and communities of faith in our day and age have tried intentionally to move beyond that. We've empowered women for leadership and are working hard to change some of the language around the divine image and, uh, you know, work to fully empower women in so many different ways. But I think that we're all, whether we realize it or not, still plagued by that, that history that has evolved within a male dominated worldview. And that, that's really a lot of the focus of the book, too, is that Christianity as such was never meant to be a male-dominated movement, but it has evolved throughout history in male-dominated cultures, and so it has taken on that, uh, that element as, as a primary part of its identity. Tell us a little bit about these uh, source texts that you're going back to when you say that Christianity was not intended to be male-dominated. Intended by whom? And uh, you know, how are you bringing that original intent into the present day? Well, I, for instance, if you look at the book of Acts, which is it's really the story of the early church and how the church came to be not just 12 disciples sitting in a room, but a movement of people who were going out and building communities and, and working for uh, this this particular vision of the kingdom that Jesus brought. Um, and there were women at the center of that from the beginning. Uh, and then you start looking at the, the letters of, of Paul and some of the others that follow that, and uh, that's where that's where things kind of start to take on a little bit more of a restrictive tone for women um, as, as those early leaders were, were thinking through uh, what role women were going to play in this, this ongoing movement. But they, they never really thought they were building a religion that was going to last for thousands of years. They thought this was, this was a movement for their time and their place and it's built specifically within that particular culture. And for for church leaders 2,000 years later to read something that was written for that particular context and think that those social systems should still somehow apply when we're within the walls of the church is just, it's kind of asinine. So um, I, I look at that a little bit and also look at how Again, translations throughout history have have maybe emphasized those restrictive roles for women more than the original authors ever meant for for those roles to be emphasized. Can you give us an example of of uh, maybe a verse uh, from scripture that uh, exemplifies what you're saying? Well, I you know, First Corinthians comes to mind that says that women are are meant to be silent in the churches, and that's that's really a favorite of the proof texters who say that women can't preach, no way, no how. They pull that out of the context of the larger letter. Uh, but when Paul was writing that letter, you know, most biblical scholars in the contemporary world will acknowledge that he was speaking to a particular congregation dealing with. A particular uh, conflict, as even modern day churches have conflict, and he was he was giving them advice on how to manage this one uh, this one episode of their life together, and it was never meant to be something that uh, sort of defined defined how the community would operate for all time, and that's that's the sort of thing um, that I address in the book and. There are, of course, other times throughout later history, like the time of uh, Constantine, 
where that again that patriarchal culture as as Christianity became to be uh, not a subversive movement but the dominant culture that uh, the the patriarchal worldview of that time really came to define the Christian movement in ways it was never intended. You used a term that I had not heard before, um, but I, I think I know what you intended by it. I think you said fact-proofers? Proof-texters. Proof-texters. Okay. Explain proof-texters. Oh, goodness. Okay. Well, to, first of all, proof-texting applies to not just uh, the roles of women and texts about women. Proof-texting can apply to, uh, well, primarily LGBT issues in Scripture or other other hot-button social issues, take your pick. But proof texting is a way of uh, maybe finding a single verse in Scripture that defends your worldview and then pulling it out of context in a debate or an argument and, and, and dropping that quote um, as though that settles everything. Uh, but it, it has no awareness of the context around it, the time and place for which it was written, or the, the larger gospel of which it was meant to be a part. So it's, it's kind of a favorite tactic of fundamentalists who have memorized certain parts of Scripture to uphold certain prejudices, is the, the best way I can think to describe it. And so you, you have your pet verses that defend uh, LGBT exclusion from the church— uh, or exclusion of women from the pulpit, or a certain understanding of uh, sin and the need for salvation, and you just are always ready to drop it into conversation. Um, they're they're also called clobber texts, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> folks that use those cannot be reasoned or bargained with. Uh, there's just if, if somebody has used a proof text in conversation, there's usually no further conversation to be had after that. So that's that's what we mean by proof texting. Meanwhile, you're writing that Jesus is a feminist. So tell us about your understanding of that larger context, the feminist context uh, in which uh, many of these verses or concepts appear and uh, and how you developed a sense of Jesus as a feminist figure, as a radical figure, even as the church became, as you say, dominant and no longer radical. Yes. And I, I should say, I'm not, I'm definitely not the first person to call Jesus a feminist. Uh, I've heard, I had professors say that in seminary. Uh, Sarah Bessie wrote Jesus Feminist a couple of years ago and has some allusions in there to Jesus being a feminist. But I think, I think most folks who, who really read the Bible as a social gospel and see Jesus as someone who came for people on the margins agree that women were very much on the margins in his time and even though a lot of uh, a lot of women's stories didn't make it into the canon and that's that's another example of how the dominant christian culture came to be so patriarchal is that as different versions of scripture were edited over time women's stories and names and voices were just conveniently excluded uh, but even the limited exchanges we see where Jesus is present with women. He really engages them in a way that's that's countercultural for that time, um, recognizing them as, as fully human and advocating for their voices. And of course, there are also some times when Jesus was, was not so nice to women. I call these the uh, Jesus, where is your mother moment <laughs> in scripture, but uh, there, there are a couple of stories where women approach him, uh, the, the story of the the crumbs from your table, the woman that uh, that says even the dogs get the crumbs from your table because he has dismissed her and called her kind of a derogatory name is, is one that comes to mind, uh, but he, he sometimes immediately reacts to women in the way that you would expect a man in his time to, to react to women, but uh, they they challenge him and they push back a little bit and he always by the end of the story has has extended some kind of grace or mercy that that is very counterintuitive for for how other men seem to be seeing women in that context. 
So I'm going to ask, if you were uh, yourself a proof texter, uh, would you be able to drop a, uh, a passage from the Bible uh, in rebuttal to some of those, say, the ones who would drop the one is, uh, for the, the one you mentioned from Corinthians? Oh, sure. Well, there's there's always the Galatians text about how there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, man nor woman, for all are one in Christ Jesus. And that's kind of this lovely uh, image of what the gospel is intended to do, which is to take down all those barriers and boundaries of of who we are and who we think other people are and and really just connect us at that human level that enables us to, to create a better world. Uh, But more than that, I think it's important to point to all the stories of women in, again, in those early churches or who were present with Jesus uh, at, at critical moments in his story and his time and say, you know, there were women disciples. They don't get the job title as, as the scripture was written, but they're there and they're serving in these same roles um, and the, the very first people to to share the gospel, which is that Jesus was risen from the dead, uh, the first folks to share that good news were the women who showed up at the tomb on Easter at sunrise. And so that he sent them to proclaim and to go tell the men, it, it's kind of, for me anyway, it's all the proof text you need that women can preach and do preach. And, you know, I always tell folks, too, women have been preaching for thousands of years, whether we were invited to or not. So <laughs> I think the, uh, the title is, is maybe secondary, but uh, after all this time and in our current uh, day and age, there's no reason it, in the world that we shouldn't also have the, the title and the job description. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Erin Wathen, author of Resist and Persist, Faith and the Fight for Equality. And she's talking about women preachers. You are yourself the senior pastor at St. Andrew Christian Church. Tell us a little bit about your congregation and your experiences as a female pastor. Well, I should say that I've, I've been really blessed in, in the life of ministry, that I've served churches where being a woman is a non-issue. Um, our, our congregations in the Disciples of Christ tradition are autonomous, which means they call their own pastors. Uh, so I've always been called and chosen by a congregation that knew I was a woman, had no issue with that. Um, I won't say it has never been a hindrance in, say, the wider community where I served or in uh, growing a congregation where maybe the community around you isn't as, as receptive to that. But uh I've again, I've been just really lucky to have been given opportunities to serve in in uh, supportive contexts. And St. Andrew is no different. St. Andrew has always empowered and encouraged women in various leadership roles. Uh, at one time, when I first got there, we had three female pastors on staff. Um, and we had to be intentional sometimes to have men who were serving different roles and leading in worship where we would you know, you'd come and go through a whole service and never see a man up front. So um, it's it's been a little different in that regard. But St. Andrew has kind of always had that, that progressive identity in very intentional ways. So in addition to empowering women for leadership, the, the church is LGBT inclusive and uh, very active in, in social justice issues of poverty and racial equity as well. That's another thing that you address in your book, uh, racism, and especially the ways that white women and women of color can be kind of pitted against one another rather than set up to work together. So give us a a sense of where you're coming from on that. Well, there again, that was something I 
I didn't really uh, understand how pervasive it was until I started writing this book. And I thought, you know, I, I, I recognize that there is a little bit of white privilege at work in the movements of traditional feminism as we know it. And that needs to be acknowledged, especially in the, the current climate. And so I started doing a little research there and, and found just the really unsettling ways that uh, throughout the fight for women's equality, white women have almost always uh, upheld their own interest and territory at the expense of our sisters of color. So for every uh, forward movement of women in history, there's been almost a further subversion of of women of color and other racial and ethnic backgrounds. And so I, I dug into that a little bit. And I don't know that I offered a, a clear and ready solution for that in this book, but I do highly encourage that recognition and continued conversation as as we continue to work for women's equality, that uh, minority voices really be amplified in ways that are intentional so that this does not remain the white women's movement that it was back in the 60s and 70s. And even before that, during women's suffrage and uh, all those those earlier waves of feminism as well. You, at one point, you write uh, the Jerry Falwell crowd set are clutching their pearls right about now. At some point in your book, um, what's your what 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 is it about the Jerry Falwell set? Tell us about it and and uh, what is your 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 uh, your take on them? Well, I use that as a a broadly sweeping term, which I, I recognize is is limiting. Um, and when I say Jerry Falwell, I don't just mean the people who are particularly followers of Jerry Falwell, but folks who adopt that that general worldview that uh, there are very specific gender roles into which everyone must uh, order themselves. And if you are anywhere outside of, of those rigid boundaries, you are somehow not living faithfully or being uh, being authentic to who God calls you to be. And that worldview is, I think, at the heart of traditional and especially fundamentalist Christianity. And I think it really places a lot of limits on not just women, but men as well. And I can't remember specifically where the pearl clutching reference came, but I think anytime you start challenging those rigid boundaries of gender identity, there's, there's always a certain set of of folks, uh, particularly in conservative Christian circles who are going to be scandalized by that. Tell us a little bit about raising children within Christianity. I know uh, a lot of younger people in particular who were raised maybe in some of those more restrictive denominations and felt very turned off by it. And meanwhile, churches are always trying to bring in more young people and get the young people raised in the faith to stay. So how, how do you tackle that? As you said, in an era when in the, the broader culture, feminism continues to, to take root and to advance. How do you bring that into the Christian upbringing of a child? Would you rather I speak to that as a parent or as a pastor? Whatever you like. Or both. Maybe, maybe a little of both. Yeah, because I think it's similar. Um, I never feel like I'm totally in or out of either of those roles. I, I definitely pastor my children sometimes, and I definitely parent my church kids maybe a lot of the time. So <laughs> I, um, it takes a village, right? But uh, I think the most important philosophy that I hold both as a pastor and a parent is that uh, we are we are to let children be fully who they are without some of the restrictions that our faith and culture might have placed on those of us in earlier generations. And that creates a lot of space, I think, for kids to, to both explore their faith in a way that's authentic and also to, to really be a part of a family and a community of faith where they feel loved and where they feel a deep sense of belonging. And out of that, if that's your if that's your primary goal, as as a person uh, with influence over a young person's life, 
then mostly only good things can come of that as they as they discover who they are as they explore uh, gender and sexuality and deeper issues of faith it's it's really all intertwined in that sense of of being a whole person and being allowed to to be who you are and not fit in someone else's box and you end each chapter with suggestions and discussion points can you share a couple with us oh uh, yeah absolutely uh, and I want to say too, I once we kind of move out of that overview of of how Christianity came to have such a, a patriarchal overtone, we look at the ways women are still really defined and limited within different cultural contexts. Um, and I, I talk about the the expectation, for instance, that that all women want to be mothers. That's patently untrue, and yet it's just kind of a pervasive cultural norm. A lot of our assumptions about what it means to be a woman are are deeply rooted in the masculine tone of modern Christianity. And so one chapter in this book that I felt was really important was talking about how social media has has provided this whole new frontier to subvert and silence women. Because in a lot of ways, you know, we, we have come so far, we have, in, in theory, equality, at least in the legal sense, and we have uh, the right to vote and own property and all of those sorts of things. But um, it seems like the more progress women make, the more ways that culture finds to subvert that and send us back a few steps. So I talked about uh, how how social media is kind of a new a new frontier for dealing with uh, sexist trolls basically, and how many women have uh, been just deeply embattled, whether it's bloggers or politicians or actresses with a, a high public profile. And so some of the questions at the end of that chapter are, um, you know, can you think of other ways that social media makes women more vulnerable? Than, than they've been in previous generations, even as it gives us voice in other ways. And, and how can the faith community work to counteract that vulnerability and empower women's voices? Uh, how have media and technology empowered women and elevated our voices? And uh, what, are, what are some women's voices that we might never have heard if not for social media platforms? And then there, there's, of course, a chapter about abortion, and I talk about the the politicized uterus and how our culture and especially politicians have learned that the best way to keep women on the margins is to divide us amongst ourselves. And so you make something like abortion, this deeply divisive issue, and you keep it deeply divisive um, almost intentionally so that that women can never really unify for our own interests. Um, and some of the some of the questions at the end of that chapter are uh, what do you see as the biggest barrier to engaging a compassionate and more nuanced discussion about reproductive rights? Uh, name some of the ph philosophies and practices at the heart of a pro-life ethic and what issues besides abortion would this ethic address and how might learning about women's lives in other parts of the world help us better approach this matter and how does the matter of life relate to broader themes of equality for women what well, sounds incredibly powerful and are you envisioning groups of women coming together to talk about this book and talk about these topics what i hope is that it's groups of not just women. It is critical that men take part in this conversation too. And that's, that's a, a larger message of the book is that for real change to happen, we need men to be feminists and to understand what it means to be feminists and to advocate for women's rights and create space for women's voices. Um, I, I try to address the, the issue of male privilege throughout the book in a way that invites men to be part of the conversation rather than making them the adversary. Uh, but I think if we're talking about a faith-based movement for equality, it needs to be not just 
women of faith, but men of deep faith as well. We've been talking with Erin Wathen, and you can find her book, Resist and Persist, Faith and the Fight for Equality, in stores right now. Erin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Millia talks about fast-growing independent presses, so stay tuned. Hi, my name is Morgan Jerkins, and I am the author of This Will Be My Undoing, Living at the Intersection of Black, Female, Feminist, and White America, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot is here to tell us all about some fast-growing independent publishers. Hi, Jim. Hey, Rose. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Always nice to have you on the show. Thank you. And uh, tell us a little bit about this regular feature of ours. Right. It is a regular feature, and I really appreciate you for calling it fast-growing because a lot of people say fastest and that we wouldn't pretend to be able to uh, track all the many hundreds and hundreds of independent publishers out there to call them the fastest. So these are fast-growing and I think uh, we've established a pretty good track record with it. And, uh, you know, this year's fastest-growing of the people who submitted is a cottage door press. Um, You know, and they're Growth has just really been phenomenal. It was over a thousand percent between 2015 and 2017. Wow. Uh, the number of titles went from 18 in 2015 to 158. Uh, employees went from 13 to 24. And, you know, obviously with, with, uh, Big growth like that, it suggests they're a young company, and in fact they are. Mm. <laughs> but they're also one of the bigger companies, uh, within Within the survey, which you have to be have sales between two and ten million, uh, while I can't disclose what the actual number is, I don't expect it'll be in uh, our our uh, target range next year. And the company was founded by uh, Richard Madrill, who was the former uh, president of Publications International, which was around for quite a long time and actually still is. And it really focuses on various types of educational books and book packages and that sort of thing. And they've done phenomenally well by focusing on that, uh, on that um, dynamic. And as they pointed out to us, you'll recognize some of these names. Mm-hmm. They did their first licensing deals last year uh, with Baby Einstein and Smithsonian. They've got a couple more different series coming up uh, in 2018. They expanded their uh, marketing channels you know, beyond just the school libraries. Um, and, you know, and they do things just to give you, you know, an idea of where their focus is, you know, the types of books they do are lift and flap books and padded board books and peak and flap formats. So I think we get the idea where their target yeah. has been and, you know, and they've done, you know, you know, really well. And it's, uh, like I said, in addition to the, f- the expanding formats, they've, like we, we mentioned, they've really broadened out into, uh, independent, bookstores, independent toy stores, those that are left, and into some international markets. And next year, they're going to be doing their first picture book, or next this year, Nothing is Scary with Harry. So they hope to have a trade line going up uh, in the next several months. What are Where they, are they based? They are based in Barrington, Illinois, Mark, okay. but they are moving to new, uh, uh-huh. <laughs> new headquarters uh, sometime this summer. Uh, in the Illinois, in the Barrington area, but Got I think it. they're moving out of there. That's um, interesting. You mentioned the independent toy stores that are left, but with Toys R Us closing all of their stores because their venture capital investors brought them into bankruptcy, I wonder if that will leave a little bit of room in the ecosystem for more independent toy stores to pop up. I and mean, as as someone who was doing a lot of shopping at right, Toys no, R Us no. after <laughs> over the last couple of years, I don't remember seeing a lot of books there, but I know that I do see board books and right. even picture books in small independent toy stores. So that could really be a boon for uh, for small presses targeting the children's market. Yeah, it could be. Uh, but, you know, independent toy stores have had a tough go of it as well for mm-hmm. some of the same reasons uh, as Toys R Us. I mean, Amazon only being one, but Toys R Us certainly did have other financial problems that uh, weighed them down. It wasn't just Amazon, but 
Needless to say, Amazon. <laughs> it, it, you know that is that is yeah. always the elephant in the room. But I I I hope that there is a little space still in the the children's retail market for uh, another few toy stores that might sell books too. Oh yeah, because I mean, all the toy stores that were within, I would say, at least the ten or fifteen mile radius of where we live, are gone. Hmm. Um, so you don't, you know, where you're going to go. But back to the book scene, one. Cottage Door was, like I said, reflective of a few other companies who talked about really, you know, focusing in on sort of the more, the children's end of it, more educational. But another theme that was, uh, came through loud and clear, and I don't think this will surprise anybody, are books connected to well, what's going on in our political arena, mm. right? Haymarket Books, for instance, uh, you know, uh, pretty well-known, um, left-wing political publisher, uh, said uh, their sales were shooting up through the stratosphere ever since Donald Trump became elected. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and their, their, their books, uh, you know, um, among some of the better-selling ones last year with, was No is Not Enough, Resisting Trump's Shock Politics and Winning the War We Need, um, which was actually a drop-in title they did in connection with... Uh, Random House of Canada and um, a publisher in the UK, Alan Lane. Um, but they've also, uh, Rebecca Solnit is a big uh, author for them, and she did extraordinarily well last year. Men Explained Things to Me, uh, I believe was their best-selling title in 2017, sold over 50,000 copies mm -hmm. you know, for, wow. for a company of Haymarket size, which has... 16 people, then that's a big wow. seller. That's yeah. a big deal. Yeah, yeah. And as the, they, they mentioned, uh, it's a lot of the backness, because Solomon's had a couple of backlist titles that also did very well. And they had an Angela Davis title they did in 2016. That, I think, was their second bestseller, um, which sold over 35,000 copies. So there's, there's that for sure. Wisdom Publications is really uh, specializes in books about Buddhism, mindfulness, and meditation. But they also said they th think some of their growth last year and last few years has been due to people looking for uh, places that they can, um, you know, take some comfort in. And they also focused last year on uh, trying to improve their front list. So they they did pretty well. Three their biggest. Three biggest frontless titles last year grossed over 350,000 titles. So, so that was great. And also what they noticed, you know, they brought in their marketing, which a lot of people do. They started um, a biannual journal called Wisdom, Wisdom Journal, a biannual publication. They have a Wisdom Academy, which is an online course um, accompanying the books that they put out that uh, added another revenue stream. Mm. And just diverting a little bit, uh, Barrett Kohler is in our list as well, and they uh, they benefited at 2017 from doing, um, they regularly do courses, and last year they did one called Servant Leadership Online Training Summit, which as the name suggests, is done online, but they attracted uh, almost 20,000 participants from 146 countries. Wow. So that's, that's wow. a great way to um, drive revenue, you know, for, and not be totally reliant on book sales, which, you know, everybody is trying to, to diversify one way or another. Let's see, who else do we have here? Familius uh, joined our list for the first time. It was, they're uh, out in California. Uh, they're founded by uh, a former Gibbs Smith executive, Christopher Robbins. And uh, they're very much a uh, family value oriented uh, publisher. And they have really cut, uh, I think, a nice niche for themselves. Um, and they, they're pretty, uh, pretty entrepreneurially as well. One thing I was really thought was a great idea, they now have 250 titles, and they were started in 2013. So uh, using those titles as a basis, they started something called the Happy Family Box, which uh, combines crafts and other family activities with books. And they 
uh, you know, so they sort of mesh with each other. And they sell that on a, like a twenty nine ninety nine subscription. Oh, how cool! Basis wow. a month. So yeah. you can, I, I know people who do a lot of subscription boxes for you know it could be for for food or for clothes or for cosmetics. Um, that's a big thing right now. So that's that's a really cool idea. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. I thought it was too, <laughs> and I think they, they they're pretty happy with the with with the early results. You know, Seven Stories Press, which is you know uh, I guess we could call a progressive publisher they also hit the list and actually it's, it's interesting um, some of their success was due to uh, the children's list which they started back in 2012 which started to start to gain some traction in 2013 and it's sort of a, a list for progressive families right. you might say oh, wow. uh, their first big hit for the kids was A is for activist and now they've developed a pretty big list in a relatively short period of time with such titles as A Young People's History of the United States and Sex is a Funny Word. So, um, you know, that's a little bit a little bit different. But they also scored with some not necessarily anti-Trump books but Requiem for the American Dream by Noam Chomsky was the bestseller, uh, and it was on inequality income, and that sold over for, for 40,000 copies. And they did uh, sell uh, Complete Stories of Kurt Vonnegut, which did over uh, 20,000 copies last year. So that theme, we, we, we don't have to keep hammering away on it, but you know, it was a good year for uh, publishers that... Uh, or part of their in the resistance, shall we say? Mm. Uh, let's see. Who else do we have here? Page Street Publishing up in uh, the Boston area. They've been going pretty rapidly as well. And they've been branching out. They started on in cooking and some lifestyle things. And interestingly, they've done a good job building on their success. Because as, as they pointed out to us, that, you know, they've got into some new some new outlets and taking more of their titles mm -hmm. and that gives them more of a chance to actually do more marketing um you know obviously right. if your books aren't in the stores you really can't uh you can't market them but they've done a really good job like you know cashing in on um the where their opportunities lie and there's always some of a, a debate when we do this, and we've been doing it for over 20 years. Should you specialize or should you branch out and diversify? And I think from what we've been seeing more and more, it's good to have a core. But if you can add some different things to it, uh, you know, that, that, that's so much the better. Right. And they've been doing kids books as well. Yes, yes, yeah. Page Street has. Yep. Um, Will, who's their founder, did yeah, acknowledge Easter, it's yep. uh, a little tough go uh, so mm -hmm. far with that, but they're, they're not giving up. Uh, he's committed to uh, you know putting some more marketing behind it to, to give him a chance, and I think they are doing new picture books this year as well. So, um, yeah, he looks for different opportunities, and we'll, we'll see what happens. And you know, another company that's pretty innovative is Morgan James. Their sales went up about 35% over the last few years. And they're, they, it's, I, that's always interesting when you see the, what happened. I mean, they do focus on business. And the best-selling title last year was a business book. Um, but they had two novels crack their top five bestseller list. So, again, um, sort of an idea that, uh, you know, you can't just be too zoned in um, if you expect uh, if you expect to, to to branch out and grow a little bit and they haven't done it yet but talking about subscription services they're going to give uh, they're going to try an ebook uh, subscription service uh, sometime this year uh, under their plan they would uh, charge a ten dollar monthly fee and you could have access to all the Morgan James titles so um, you know, we'll see what happens there. And they're also going to be getting into uh, the audiobook right. market, uh, which they acknowledge. They've been a little late in coming to, but they hired a publisher last year, and uh, they hope to uh, cash in uh, on that. And again, uh, segueing back over to uh, Barrett Kohler, one of the reasons they did uh, give um, for rising sales last year was that you know, now they pretty much, uh, 
do all their books in audio, and audio sales doubled in 2017 over 2016. So just more affirmation of you know how strong how strong the um, audio market is, yeah. basically due to you know digital and streaming titles. And one other uh, trend that is of some note through a couple of the publishers we covered was you know STEM and STEAM. Somebody asked me, uh, you know, uh, science, technology, education, and math, and the A is arts. Right. So, yep. uh, yeah, which is what we're doing in school. Yeah, exactly. Right. I think the that, E is engineering. Engineering. What did I say? Education. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Who wants to be an education major? <laughs> Thank you, We Rose. We need more of them, but, <laughs> I know, but not, not the focus uh, right now. No, that's for sure. I know they, they, and this was uh, Charles Bridge. And they've really done very well with those. And it's, you know, it's backlist books for them, too, that did well in the STEAM and STEM area, as well as uh, some backlist titles in some other um, more generic areas, like um, uh, a book about, oh, no, it's time to go back to school. <laughs> yeah. that, that, that does well every fall. Right. right. So, you know, uh, that, that's the trick, right, is to find those, uh, find those books that... Uh, keep selling all the time um and in turn again in terms of diversity agate publishing out in the chicago land area one of their big books was crown and ode to the fresh cat written by derek barnes and illustrated by gordon james and it's the first book published under the Deneen Milner Books imprint which was launched last october and that the aim of this is to bring in uh Diverse people, diverse titles, um, and they're going to be doing uh, a few more of those this year coming up. One written by Milner herself, My Brown Baby. Actually, that came out last year. So they have three titles in the imprint right now. They're going to do a couple more this year, and they hope to branch out uh, in that area as well. A couple of years ago, when the Aggie was on the list, they did really well with... Uh, uh, Steve Jobs' book, uh, in his own words. And so this year they have I, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, in her own words. Yeah, that's been getting a lot which, of Which, uh, you know, they, uh, they hope can maybe duplicate the job success. Well, Jim, this sounds like an incredible roundup. Thank you so much for uh, bringing all of this to us. And uh, anyone who wants more information can find the feature in the magazine. They can certainly find the feature in the magazine. Yeah, it's a lot to uh, try to remember. (laughs) (laughs) It's always great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Uh, Thanks, Rose. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Mary Morris, author of Gateway to the Moon. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash radio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode stream live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 